Welcome to NucleCast, the official podcast of the ANWA Deterrence Center. Each week, we bring you leading nuclear deterrence experts for a lively discussion on current topics. Our host is Dr. Adam Lowther, Director of Strategic Deterrence Programs at the National Strategic Research Institute. The views of the host and the guests are their own. All right, and welcome back to NucleCast. Of course, I am your host, Adam Wilder, and today we have a special guest, of course, and it's a little different background than we're used to. Today is Scott Sudeth, who is a founding partner of Washington Navigators, which is a strategic consulting firm focused on federal and international issues affecting higher education, innovation, and competitiveness and nuclear national security. Now, Scott started his career. He worked on Capitol Hill and then moved on and ultimately ended up on working some of the contracts, the M&O contracts for uh, the, the weapons labs. And so worked as a senior leader at the University of California system, who, of course, as many of you know, ran uh, Lawrence Livermore National Lab for many years and then went to the University of Chicago and then the University of Texas system, who also has it, they have a UARC, and then Texas A&M. So he's got a lot of experience in the management of labs. And so we'll have a different discussion, whereas in the past we've talked weapon systems, we've talked warheads. Today we're going to talk a little bit about workforce development and we're going to talk about some of the interesting concerns about like the thousand talents program. That's, a, you know, I, I worked uh, uh, China issues for, for many years. And so this is one of the areas I've written some articles on. So we'll talk that. And uh, so welcome into the show, Scott. Thank you, Adam. It's a pleasure to be here. And uh, I must say, don't ask me how to build a pit. But I can sure talk to you about the politics <laughs> and uh, that surround build, building a pit. Well, you know, it's funny that you should mention the politics surrounding building a pit because um, I don't know if you know this, but I'm I'm really good at math, and I have done uh, the calculations on both the pits and politics, and I have found that politics are actually more explosive than uh, you know plutonium pits are. So. I'm sure you can help us with that today. Well, that's the argument I've been making for why <laughs> folks need Washington Navigators. So uh, <laughs> bring it on. So, you know, one of the probably one of the, the reasons I like you most is, of course, because uh, you are, you know, like so many others, uh, an adopted Texan who moved to Texas. You realize the superiority of Texas. I, of course, was born there, and so I am a native, but you got there as quick as you could. And so before we go to talking about politics and workforce development, you know, one of the great things that, you know, I would like to give you the opportunity to do is to tell people, to tell our listeners what you like most about Texas. Well, you know, that's that's a hard question to answer because, of course, I love the people. I love the barbecue. 
but I also love the dove hunting in South Texas. Uh, and uh, the only thing I don't like is the fact that the wind blows from uh, Nebraska, where you are, straight to where I grew up in Lubbock, and there's nothing <laughs> in between. And I was a big cyclist, and I would much rather cycle a mountain any day than take on the winds of West Texas. It's true. It's very true. You know, I just finished, I don't know if you've ever read it. We're totally off topic here, but I just finished a book called The Empire of the Summer Moon, which is uh, a great book about the the empire of the Comanches I, on I've, the plains. Yes, I've read it. One of my favorite, it was a, uh, as you well know, uh, it was in many ways a hard book, uh, gruesome in many places, but wow, uh, what a story, not only of uh, the Native Americans, uh, but also of the just how rugged Texas was, and, and in many ways still is. Yeah, definitely. So that's a, a free tip to our listeners. Go read The Empire of the Summer Moon. You'll love it. So if we, if we go ahead and move on to our topic of the day, so you spent most of your career in the management of, of labs, and you were there for the creation of NNSA. You worked on the, you know, the, the recompete of the labs. And for those that don't know, our, you know, our labs are government-owned, corporate-operated, and they're GOCOs. It's sort of a special relationship. And it's um, it's a it's a different type of working environment. Do you think you could maybe explain sort of that how that works in that unique relationship for those that may not be familiar? Well, I'll sure give it a try, but uh, it it is not something that uh, is conducive to breakfast conversation. That's for sure. <laughs> uh, but you know, uh, of course. The particularly the nuclear weapons labs, uh, speaking specifically of Los Alamos and then the sister lab Livermore, you know they actually evolved out of uh, a unique relationship between the government and the uh, nonprofit research community. So for the first 75 years of Los Alamos ex existence, it was actually managed by a nonprofit. The modern model does include. Uh, both a kind of a, a hybrid model involving some corporations or private sector groups that have experience in operations and in operating large, complex facilities, as well as teaming with universities who, um, who bring you know, a lot of the research expertise and the fresh ideas to the table. And I think perhaps the fundamental reason that that the government manages these facilities through this what's called as you referred to it the management and operation the MO contract is that by giving this private sector or this combination of nonprofits and, and private sector the opportunity to run the lab in theory it's going to help with recruiting and retaining the workforce and helping keep the facility more nimble and on the cutting edge of innovation and technology that it would not necessarily have if it were completely 
inside the government fence. And do you think that, you know, you said it yourself, it's sort of the, the ideal. Do you think it's an effective model? I mean, that it's working as it was designed? You know, I think at the, at the end of the day, yes, because, of, again, if you're looking at the nuclear security enterprise, uh, you know, our fundamental, the fundamental goal is to uh, stockpile stewardship and to maintain deterrence. And at the end of the day, we have achieved both of those, uh, but it's not without its challenges. Uh, it is... Uh, uh, the, the process that the government goes through for every five to seven to 12 years of competing these labs, it's complicated. Um, the teams that form to compete, it doesn't necessarily always feel like it's a fair fight. Um, and the infrastructure uh, at many of the facilities is not where it needs to be. But again, uh, we still fortunately lead the world in this very important and critical national security arena. Now, before the show, we talked a little bit about uh, questions of workforce development. So from sitting on the boards and working the, you know, the, the contracts, how do you see our weapons labs in their ability to recruit talent, to maintain talent. And, you know, there's been a lot of discussion about the average age of many of our lab folks, um, that it's sort of, you know, creeping up. And I think it's somewhere in, you know, the folks are in their 50s on average. Uh, Do you see that uh, a talent, uh, future talent pool problem, or do you think we'll be able to do exactly what we need and recruit particularly as, you know, like the Kansas City plan, Sandia, they've all grown uh, dramatically in the last, you know, five, seven years, as many of these modernization programs have have taken place. Do you see any future issues? Uh, Absolutely. I would say it's uh, uh, tied with maintaining our edge on critical technologies, it's tied with that for being the top uh, uh, challenge uh, facing the uh, national nuclear security enterprise. Uh, Let me uh, set the stage just a little bit. If you look across the security enterprise that includes both the national labs, the production sites, and uh, in an essay, you're looking at about 49,000 employees. Now, most of those employees are on the MO contractor side, meaning they're, you know, they work for Triad at uh, uh, Los Alamos, or they work for CNS at Pantex and Y12, et cetera. Of those 49,000, a little over 25% of them are eligible for retirement today. And if they don't retire today, they're certainly going to retire tomorrow or very soon. So you're already looking at a significant uh, attrition that you have to keep up with just to maintain where you are. But as you pointed out, uh, several of the almost the entire 
complex. Their mission is growing. So in addition to replacing those who are retiring, you're actually having to grow the workforce too to meet the expanded program. Los Alamos, for example, is now uh, hiring, uh, trying to hire almost 2,000 employees a year. And attrition is only making up for about um, you know, 25% to a third of that. So the, the, the challenge is, uh, is significant. Now, one of the interesting things, like whenever I was in graduate school, um, most of, well, almost all of my, you know, cohort of, of graduate students were, you know, were Chinese nationals and would return, many would return back to China, some have stayed in the U.S. And so over time, we've seen in American universities, we have a lot, particularly in the sciences and the engineering and math, we have a lot more um, nationals from other countries. Um, China is one of the largest senders of students to the U.S., and so therefore that, you know, just like the military has a a shrinking pool of 18 to 24-year-olds for, you know, whether it be physical issues or legal issues or drug-related issues, it seems to me, and correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems like the pool of potential, you know, engineers and scientists that we would draw from for these, the weapons labs and for the production complex is also shrinking is, is would you is that correct incorrect well i uh, i would say that 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 is correct uh if particularly if you look at across the united states and i can't remember exactly which year we will reach this but you're already seeing that the number of uh, 18, 19 year olds who are going to college is declining. Uh, now, the good news is that's not the only, uh, you know, well, college is, a, is an important uh, on-ramp. Uh, it's not the only on-ramp. And there are a lot of jobs across the nuclear security enterprise um, that required uh, skilled labor, that require uh, training that you can get elsewhere. But there is no question that the uh, college age population in this country is declining. And of course, you just put on top of that, the fact that uh, China is uh, what, almost f in terms of population, five four times, times four or five times larger than the United States. So naturally, um, they could be sending more students. And then that, and, you know, American kids, you know, want to be social influencers and, you know, they want to, you know, I think uh, communications is the number one degree granted in the United States, um, as opposed to, you know, in China, for example, STEM degrees are the number one right. degrees granted. So we, you know, we have a, a distinct cultural challenge to get we, American kids interested. And it is a, it's a challenge that I see many of our uh, higher education institutions uh, responding to, as well as uh, the NNSA and the labs. Uh, I know several of the universities uh, 
that I have worked with uh, over the years have really focused on building STEM opportunities for uh, domestic students, uh, both at the undergraduate and graduate level. Uh, it is not a problem. It's not a, uh, a challenge that you, uh, you know, fix overnight, but uh, we see a lot of uh, progress. And we also see uh, the labs, uh, like, for example, uh, Los Alamos uh, invest in its community engagement with the northern New Mexico community. They have uh, created STEM programs with the community colleges. They've, they've dipped down into the, to the uh, uh, K through 12, or I would say eighth grade through 12. Right. So as you look at sort of the big challenges in the labs and in the, the approach, whether it be the human capital side or whether it be facilities or whether it be policy, because you deal with a lot of policy. That's sort of one of your specialty areas is the politics and policy of D.C. What do you see as the largest sort of two or three challenges that uh, for the success of the labs that we'll have to overcome? Well, uh, I want to stay on the workforce for a moment and talk about uh, kind of what uh, NNSA does now, uh, but really kind of focus on, I think they need to do business a little differently, as, as do the labs. You know, right now, uh, the, the Department of Energy, the government, and I know many of the military branches, you know, they will host these uh, job fairs and career days on college campuses. Um, I was uh, on a recent uh, college campus attending a national security um, seminar, and it just so happened that uh, literally in the foyer in the rooms next door to where this national security seminar was going on, uh, all of the NNSA labs were having a job fair to try to attract uh, students. I went over and talked to uh, the representatives from the different facilities, and they had had barely any traffic. Uh, really? What, what students came, you know, were really interested. Um, and so obviously the, the labs were frustrated, but I think they're, they interpreted it, it, you know, they just thought the students were interested, which actually is not the case. What, but the job fairs don't really, they're, they're one-offs and they don't really, uh, it's not the most effective approach for the NNSA to work with universities. They need to have a more targeted approach. They need to uh, provide some opportunities for students at the undergraduate level through like capstone programs. And then more importantly, instead of doing the fellowships and the internships, which again are more like one-offs, they actually need to engage the faculty, folks like you, Adam, who are training, uh, who have uh, graduate students, you know, who are interested in doing research with you, engage the faculty, engage them on research, pay those graduate students to come do the research, and then you're going to find that this becomes a much, uh, I think, a much more uh, dramatic uh, pipeline uh, for the labs. So the approach that uh, that they've taken now, and they've increased, they being the NNSA, their partnerships with minority institutions, uh, which is important. But again, these are more one-offs. They actually need to go in and and 
At the undergraduate level, bring these students in, give them a chance to actually see uh, what uh, what working at a lab is like, and then engage the faculty in a longer-term relationship uh, to, to attract those graduate students. Yeah, so that'd be the first thing I'd do. That's an interesting point, and it, you know, it makes me think. So I work for the National Strategic Research Institute, which is the UARC of the University of Nebraska. And so next Friday, for example, we're having a day where we, the, the UARC folks, go meet with the faculty to talk about potential areas where they could be uh, engaged in research and with, uh, you know, STRATCOM and DITRA and some others. And so in some respects, based on your comments, I'm like, okay, maybe we're, we're doing something right. Uh, because that then filters down to the students that the faculty may bring in to support the work. And I know, it, you know, at Kansas State, uh, they've got their nuclear engineering department is really good and they're reaching out and trying to work with folks. So it seems that they're, you know, you worked at uh, Texas and, you know, UT has a great uh, UARC that works on for the Navy. Absolutely. Yes. And, A&M is doing hypersonics. And so it seems that there's, you know, they're leading the hypersonics group. So it seems that there's, you know, there's some successes out there, but we, we probably need more. And because I, I would imagine you get onesies and twosies graduating each year from these institutions where you might need, you know, hundreds or thousands. Yeah, you're absolutely right. Um, and, and the other issue here that, frankly, some of the labs uh, would, you know, they would, they would uh, take issue with, with me on this, but they tend to always go back to the same high-quality university uh, instead of expanding to other universities who may not have the brand that uh, the university that they have gone to forever and ever, but still have very quality students who could uh, help and who would be eager for the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, like if you look at Livermore, Livermore is, you know, it's it's got quite a few folks that are Berkeley graduates. And California is a big state, you know, has lots of other universities that may produce folks that are, uh, you know, really, really, you know, interested and might want to spend, see the utility of spending yes. a career in the lab. So uh, your, your point is well taken. One other area I might just touch on briefly regarding workforce um, and then uh, happy to move on to other topics. But uh, one of the uh, biggest challenges right now in the nuclear security enterprise is retention. Mm -hmm. uh, they're noticing that uh, the number of people leaving uh, after five, six years on the job is ticking up. Mm -hmm. And so, so uh, the contractors and the complex need to be focused on retention. Do we know and, why that is? You know, um, I haven't uh, actually, there's a, uh, I know there's a, uh, some interest within NNSA right now in trying to study that problem and to learn more about it. But I can tell you just from experience, my own experience at some of the labs and talking to employees, 
you know, they, one of the one of the issues, of course, is childcare. Uh, one of uh, another issue is housing. Uh, it is tough to find. Uh, in fact, you know, in some of the communities like northern New Mexico, it's hard to recruit uh, young uh, employees to begin with because of just the lack of housing stock. Um, uh, but child care, uh, providing these new hires an opportunity to learn beyond just the division that they've been hired in and to see not only how what they do, you know, contributes to the overall mission, but also to get opportunities to work in other areas within the lab. You know, I, I, Adam, I've spent uh, way too much time in higher ed, uh, 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 you know, senior management. And it's kind of one of the inside jokes is we're, we're damn good at uh, training them, uh, you know, in the classroom. But we're not very good at uh, providing uh, career growth opportunities and training to our own workforce. Yeah. And the labs are similar. Yeah. Now, I did forget one thing. We were supposed to take a break. So before we move on, we'll take a quick break. Um, Our guest today is Scott Sudeth, and we'll be right back to discuss uh, the Thousand Talents program and uh, the biggest challenges that the labs are facing. So we'll be right back. This episode of Nuclecast is brought to you by the Anwar Deterrence Center, whose mission is to educate Americans about the nuclear enterprise and strategic deterrence. Welcome back. Uh, that was a quick break for and a word from our sponsor. So we're with Scott Sudeth. He's talking about uh, the biggest challenges he sees across the labs. And you were mentioning child care, uh, housing, which, you know, if you spend much time out at the labs, I mean, Livermore is in, it's not in San Francisco, but it's still a, in a very expensive area. Uh, Los Alamos, one of my absolute favorite places. But like you said, you know, uh, Santa Fe's close, but it's incredibly expensive. And then Los Alamos doesn't, the, the town itself doesn't have much in the way of housing. Um, Sandia's in a, you know, it's in a tougher part of Albuquerque. And Albuquerque's a tough town. Um, whether you go to Pantex, Amarillo, it's, it's part of the great state of Texas, but some folks might not want to live out on the, the windy plains. 
Um, so, well, you know, a, a calm day is 35 miles an hour. You just, uh, you know. It's a great day. That's, that's the day you want to ride your bike is on that day. That, that's right. Uh, well, the good news is uh, I, I have seen uh, both the M&O contractors are beginning to step up and to try to engage with their local communities uh, to address some of these problems. I mean, for example, uh, again, the, the, the small community of Los Alamos, well, I think it sits at 7,000 feet. It's one of the prettiest places uh, on Absolutely. Earth. Absolutely. Uh, but, it, you know, it is, it's, it's sort of it's geographically locked by uh, either mountains or canyons. But having said that, uh, even the, the town council uh, has begun to realize that they need to uh, they they need to modify some of their policies so that they can that it's easier to build some uh, multi-unit housing uh, for young professionals uh, and also to encourage a diversity of uh, businesses. Uh, uh, to attract people to live and work there. You know, the other thing that some of the labs are doing that uh, is also, you know, of course, we all learned so much from COVID. Um, one of uh, some of the tech takeaways from COVID is that there is some work that can be done offsite. Obviously not classified work, but some of the business operations and other work that can be done offsite, and that relieves some of the pressure uh, for a concentration of both housing and facilities right around a lab facility. Right. Yeah. So is there, you know, we've talked about some, what, some perfectly logical challenges to have. Are there any other um, challenges, big challenges that you see? And then we'll move on to uh, the Thousand Talents program before we end the show. Well, obviously the, the, the biggest challenge is, uh, frankly, just how expensive this uh, uh, this enterprise is. Mm. Uh, now, I, you know, it has received strong bipartisan support uh, in recent years, and I would expect that to continue on Capitol Hill. Uh, but uh, it, it is a significant uh, federal commitment uh, to stay on the cutting edge of the technologies and to upgrade uh, the infrastructure, some of which you know, dates back to the Manhattan Project. Yeah, it's, uh, it's an interesting question because I, I often give a, a lecture on what I call the cost effectiveness of nuclear weapons. And, and as you look at the, the weapons complex itself, it's, you know, it's, I think it's what twenty billion dollars or so uh, in a yes. in a federal budget of six trillion dollars. I think we you know we lose through waste, fraud, and abuse about seventy billion dollars a year in just Medicare and Medicaid. So I mean, while twenty billion bucks is a lot of money um, by anybody's standard, um, it's not Jeff Bezos' kind of money. It's, it's a lot of money for you and me, but in the relative... Is that, is that Jeff Bezos of uh, eight months ago or eight days ago? <laughs> exactly. 
<laughs> but it, but it's you know in the in the federal budget, you know as I think about it, it's you know it's less than one one hundredth of one percent of the budget, and it's you know it gets us a lot of really good engineers and a lot of really good scientists to keep that bench that that we clearly need in this country. So for me at well, least, go ahead. I need you to come to Washington and be prepared to testify. You're, you're, uh, you have some uh, very compelling points to make. Yeah, that's one thing I often tell folks about the military and about, you know, the defense contractors is that what you're, you're not just buying weapons. You're buying the ability to engineer things and to create things, and those are the types of things you don't want to lose. The brain power. And, you yeah. know, for example, uh, you know, we did, uh, we took our eye off the ball on continuing um, uh, the ability to uh, manufacture, to have the capability to manufacture pits. And we, yeah. you know, we've spent some money to uh, uh, reinvest and reinvigorate uh, that capability. Uh, but it would be better to sustain it than to Absolutely. have to rebuild it. Now we're almost out of time, but I wanted to, since you've spent so much of your time working in higher ed and with big universities, um, I've worked a lot on um, Chinese espionage issues and written some about it. And it's, you know, it's a big concern uh, for me and for many others. And one of the issues um, is you know, like, for example, I, you know, I live in the Kansas City area and the University of Kansas, which is less than an hour down the road, recently had a, a professor that ended up going to jail for ties to the Chinese Communist Party. And I watched as these cases pop up all over the nation at universities. And so, you know, the Chinese have the Thousand Talents program. They're very good at industrial espionage. They they do it in bulk as opposed to the Russians who are very skillful at it. Um, but how do you see this problem? Is, is it the challenge that, you know, some think it is, or do you see it as sort of a, you know, we oftentimes see a dramatic event and we say, Oh my gosh, we have a national problem because of one event. But if you use a little bit of math, uh, you see that statistically that one event is an anomaly and it's very, very rare. Would you say that we actually have a problem or would you say that this is not the problem that we may think it is because of the stories that hit the national press? Yeah, you know, as with most things, I would say the uh, the reality is somewhere in the middle. Um, uh, like you, I, I have... Uh, a lot of professional experience in, in this arena. I've uh, represented uh, universities that uh, have, uh, through their own efforts, discovered uh, uh, faculty or students that uh, were not who they had presented themselves to be. Um, I've also been involved in congressional hearings of, uh, you know, uh, alleged uh, espionage at uh, some of the national labs. So I, I would say espionage is real, both in the commercial sector and in the research community. Uh, my personal experience, uh, I have worked for universities that have 
somewhat shied away from doing classified research, and I have worked for those who have embraced doing classified research. And as you would expect, the latter, the, the community that has done a lot of classified research and worked a lot with the, the national defense community, they have always, uh, they've, been, they've had a higher sensitivity to uh, this challenge and have had safeguards right. uh, internally for some time. It is the broader research community that I think for a number of years uh, did not take the problem seriously. Uh, but because of the working with the FBI, other investigative agencies, uh, arms of law enforcement, and, and seeing uh, some of the evidence that's been brought forth, most major research universities now, as well as the national labs, are putting in safeguard measures to, I mean, like, for example, if you're a, a faculty member at most major uh, universities now, you have to uh, disclose uh, potential conflicts of interest um, that you may not previously have had to uh, disclose. And that would include if you were working for a Chinese talent program. And I know several universities that where if you are working for a Chinese talent program, you have to choose whether you're going to continue working for us or them, but you can't do both. Right. Um, and I think there's a growing, you know, one of the challenges has been, of course, at the federal level, because so much of our research funding for our major research enterprise comes from the federal government. You know, the Department of Energy would have one set of rules. The Department of Defense would have another set of rules on disclosure and who could work on a grant and who couldn't. And NIH would have a third. There is now a, a more concerted effort led by the uh, president's uh, science advisor and uh, uh, OSTP to have some uh, coherence and uh, uh continuity in the federal rules so that people know what the expectations are. Right. Yeah. And, and I would say most universities, many of the universities that I work with, including Kansas, by the way, now have a chief research security officer. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that they do, particularly for uh, new faculty, is they'll have a 101 session before they do any international travel, particularly if they're going to countries that have a, uh, a history of uh, trying to steal our IP. Yeah. They do a lot of do's and don'ts uh, with faculty. So just to, to raise the overall awareness level. Mm. Yeah, that's, that's great to hear. Unfortunately, though, we are out of time. Our uh, episode has gone by quickly as it does every so I want to thank Scott Sudeth for joining us. We had an interesting discussion about the labs and how they're managed and the human capital issues. And then we capped it off with a, a brief talk about the role of the Thousand Talents program and espionage and how the, the universities across the nation are trying to deal with that. So I want to thank you, Scott, for joining us. We appreciate your time and uh, appreciate uh, your your thoughts on some really compelling and interesting topics. 
Adam, great to be with you, and I look forward to seeing you at Salt Lick and Dripping Springs. That's about halfway between Panhandle and Houston. We can continue the conversation. Oh, I look forward to it. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, and thanks to the listeners, and we'll see you on the next episode.